Hey, what's up? This is Christopher Stolle of Realm of the Mist Entertainment. The podcast you are listening to is part of the SJ Network. Go to s-j-network.com. That's s-j-network.com for more great podcasts and information on those shows, as well as information and an ability to contact publicist Steve Joyner for more information. Just go to the website and check out the family, ladies and gentlemen. Until then, enjoy the show. Hungry Trilobite Podcast would like to acknowledge conventions such as WeedonCon. WeedonCon is a fan-generated charity event for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, Firefly, and all Joss Whedon creations. It is scheduled for October of 2020 and is held in Los Angeles, California. Portion of the proceeds benefit the Los Angeles LGBT Center as well as the Ron Glass Memorial Scholarship. See details at WeedonCon.com. Welcome to today's episode of the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. My name is Aaron Bossig, and as always, I'm your host. Let's talk numbers for a little bit. This is a very special episode for me. It's not a landmark episode, per se. It's episode 42. And if you're a Hitchhikers fan like myself, you know the significance of the number 42. So I have to celebrate this episode. Rest assured, I do have a big episode planned for episode 50, which is what most people would consider to be the episode that I should celebrate, but I'm really happy to get the 42. Now, this episode is going to be bringing back Shannon Icorn, who was on the episode not too long ago, episode 39. And 39 doesn't have any particular significance other than that's how old I am. But this is a part two, so you may want to go back to episode 39 and check that out. If you've already listened to it, Let's get started. Back today, we have Shannon Icorn picking up part two of a conversation we started a few weeks ago. How are you doing? Pretty good. How are you? I am doing great. Uh, We had to cut off our last conversation short, and I regret that, but we had a great conversation going about fan fiction and how it was its own industry in the mid to late 70s, and it's carried fans through for decades at the time, and... Well, that ties in with your book as well, because you said it started as fan fiction. It did. Your book, Rights of Use, that I've been plogging through very slowly and surely. And I want to say for the record, I've been plogging through because things have been very hectic for me, not because it's not a very quick and fun read, because it very much is. Well, I'm glad you're enjoying it. (laughs) You know, it struck me that And this is something we hinted at in the first episode, but the more I read, the more it really kind of gets hammered into my head there. You can approach this book from two completely different perspectives. It's about whether or not the government can acknowledge aliens exist. And how you see that is... Oh. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm counting with you. Uh Uh-huh. And how you see that is entirely dependent on whether you think aliens might exist. Yeah, I never looked at it that way. <laughs> I, I totally do, because full disclosure, I have no problem believing in alien life forms. Okay. None whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I talk to other people, and they're like, are you an idiot? And I can't see their perspective. They can't see mine. It's a block we have. And depending on what kind of person picks up your book, they're going to get two totally different stories from this. That is fascinating. Um and maybe maybe part of that is just my 
indecision. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, last time we talked about Project uh, Blue Book a little bit Mm -hmm. and how the the University of Colorado report came through and said, you know, based on what we know, this is for sure not a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I work with a lot of skeptics. You know, I have this hard engineering background. It's very easy for me to look at it and say, okay, well, you can't prove a negative and we have no proof. So clearly, you know, we don't know that this is a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we we have lots of gaps in that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, places where, you know, it makes sense that it would be hard to get proof or or just, you know. I don't want to be alone in the galaxy. Mm-hmm. I don't want to be. I don't want it to just be humans and Earth. It's a big universe out there, and you look at. They call it the Fermi paradox, but statistically, there is so much out there. It is so easy to believe that we can't be alone. True. True. And like I said, I I totally think that this is at least plausible, if not per, for sure. Sure. And. Let me let me approach to you this way, because we talked about statistically and looking at it from an engineering perspective, mm-hmm. you can't prove a negative. Right. And we can't assume that this is the case because we have no proof of it. But we can also say with reasonable certainty that we can quantify what we don't know. We can say this is the information we don't have. And the X factors that could make this happen could fit into those gaps. Absolutely. Are you, are you familiar with Scott Adams? Passingly. Okay. So you've read a couple Dilbert comic strips in your life. Sure. Okay. I have one posted in my office I'm not working in. Okay. Um, one thing he has said in his books is that if something works, it's not necessary that you know how. Hmm. Okay. And, and, and to, to kind of bring that back to the point I'm making here is if aliens did exist and we couldn't prove it it wouldn't matter that we couldn't prove it they would exist sure there's lots of things that work and we don't understand why exactly and, and the fact that we let's not to say we couldn't understand but sure. the fact that we don't have that knowledge doesn't preclude it from existing right so this is still not an irrational perspective sure for what so, we know today exactly Exactly. And, and so that's why your book is so interesting in that it goes into saying, it goes into an analysis of, okay, what is the gap between something that could exist or not and what we know now? Hmm. That's, that's a really cool perspective. Well, thank you. I, it's a really cool book. It's a really cool idea. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I, I read a lot of science fiction, mm-hmm. some better than most. Yours is darn good. You are definitely, I think, a rising star in the in the science fiction well, industry. Thank you. You're quite welcome. I put my soul in that book. Well, and it's, it, it shows. And, I mean, people like me are going to love this. That's excellent. All right, I'm going to use all this momentum we built up today, and I'm going to go right into editing book two. Please, please do. Sounds <laughs> um. So what's your experience been like getting this book out there and getting other feedback? It's, it's been mixed. Okay. That's fair. Uh, 
which I think is just everybody's experience. Mm-hmm. If you're if you're talking to a diverse enough group of people, you're going to get mixed feedback on anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been probably better than I should have been expecting um, for a first book for something that had as convoluted a path to publishing as this one had. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, actually, you don't know. Um, <laughs> it was it was under contract with a small publishing company, and um, things happened, and I ended up getting the rights back. Um, at that point, they had hired a developmental editor to work with me to rewrite the whole book, which, you know, was huge. The last, the draft before this final one was just lackluster compared to the final one. It, it made a huge difference and I'm really grateful for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but due to the circumstances, we only made it halfway through uh, working together. So, you know, it was a long process. I, I rewrote it and rewrote it over like 10 years. And um, by the time I got the rights back and was self-publishing it, I was burnt out. Everybody around me was burnt out. Um, and I didn't know how it was going to go because I didn't get to work with that editor through to the end. And I've gotten, I've gotten some really interesting feedback. Because I was so sure that, you know, the first half would be fantastic. And, you know, if it failed anywhere, it would be in the second half. And the second half is the part that everybody likes. Mm-hmm. So that was really encouraging. It was hard to hear that there were things that people didn't like. But that's inevitable. Sure. And actually, that, that's I'd like to go back to that conversation for a minute there. So because sure. this is something that. Anybody who just piddles around and and tries to write on the margins won't have this conversation, but somebody who really wants to cut their teeth in the writing business will have this conversation. Mm -hmm. Somebody sits down with you with your book and says, this is good enough that it needs to be published and available in print and in bookstores, but it needs to be completely rewritten. How do you wrestle those two emotions? The funny thing is, they didn't tell me it was good enough. They never, ever came close to saying that. They said, we will take anything that is kind of holding together, mm-hmm. and we will work with you to make it good. So there was no joy of acceptance. It was the joy of, okay, now this is going somewhere. Mm-hmm. But there was no, in that process, there was no validation of, yes, it, it finally made it, it's good enough. Fair enough, fair um, enough. Um, and I had rewritten it from scratch three times before that. So I knew that there were things that were probably still left. I thought it was as good as I could get it on my own, um, but it wasn't a surprise to say, okay, yeah, it needs some more stuff. It needs more emotion. It needs more um, coherence. There is so much going on in that book that one of the major challenges in that last revision was just how do you present all this information um, in a way that anybody could understand? Or how do you 
present it and make sure there's not holes because I've been working with this series for, you know, 10 or 15 years, depending on how you're looking at it. So. It, it wasn't a surprise. It was by the time that they said that I had let that draft cool long enough that I was okay with going back to it. Okay. That's a pretty level-headed approach there. Oh, I had done it a few times. Yeah. Well, again, and for somebody who is just, you know, typing things on their phone and thinking they'll be the next Stephen King, they're not ready for those heartbreaks. They're not ready for that level of work and that level of uncertainty that you've gone through. Well, I... I had a few things predisposing me to be able to take that feedback. Mm -hmm. I had the, while I was just two or three years into the fan fiction series I told you about last time, um, I had the opportunity to go to the alpha writing workshop for teens. It's a genre specific workshop in Pittsburgh. That's fantastic. Um, but it's, you know, a teenage writer's like quick first quick professional well not quick first intensive professional workshop right where they'll tell you all the hard truths about you know this is how you get published and you know let's do some editing exercises and you know we accepted you because we thought you could be good enough but you need to work at it that kind of thing um so i knew all that before i started writing original fiction um, which made it easier, I think. Um, I was going somewhere with all that, but uh, I'm going to hit the caffeine. I think you actually hit it pretty well there and summed it up pretty nicely. And I would also guess that since you have an engineering background, you're very accustomed to somebody saying, this either works or it doesn't, and how much work it took to get to that process, that to that final point doesn't really factor into it probably i remember the thing um so one of the things they told us at that writing workshop was sorry mm -hmm. we'll go everywhere one of the things that they told us at that writing workshop was you know the way to get published is to start with short stories and write a bunch of short stories and get a bunch of short stories published and then go to novels right mm -hmm. um and I was like, my short story that I submitted to get in was the only short story I'd ever written. Um, I like novellas, I like novels, I like long works, and I'm going to write a novel and get that first novel published. You know, it, there are many, many reasons why they tell you not to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so I knew it was going to be a slog. Fair enough. But it did work. And that's... The results speak for themselves. Yay! And when... Just to kind of look at this from another perspective, if you're writing a short story, who are you going to sell it to? There's your classic Asimov's, Analog, Science Fiction Fantasy Magazine... Sure. This is a great time for science fiction short stories. There are so many venues, especially online. Mm -hmm. um, there, 
they're d doing pretty well, as far as I understand, being somebody who doesn't read short stories. That, um, yeah. <laughs> which makes it hard to write them. But, but there are tons of venues and, you know, they're, they're publishing many se or several different stories at a time on a regular basis. It's still a good way to go. Mm -hmm. And if that was sensible. <laughs> but but the, my point was that I personally do buy those magazines. Not often, mm -hmm. but it's like once a year, I will just head to the bookstore and grab a copy of every science fiction magazine I can. And I take them on an airplane or I, I have a little summer reading session or something. Mm -hmm. But that's not a huge part of my reading background. Right. I, that's not a huge part of my habit. I will go to novels either in print or, phys or, or digital form way more often. Me so too. I'm consuming more novels. So logically, you can sell me more novels. And there are, you know, even more people out there ready to sell you a novel. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it, it, it's... But the advice you got was not terrible, but to think that that's the only way to go about this is a little shorthanded. Sure. Granted, at the time, it was 2005, mm -hmm. and self-publishing was not where it is now. The, the access to electronic books was not where it is now. Mm -hmm. um, I feel the access to print-on-demand, I don't even know if print-on-demand was a thing. It's... <laughs> It, in 2005, print-on-demand was just a hair away from being a scam. It, it was right. still legit, but the economics were so far against you, it would never really be good advice. Sure. And that's something we don't understand today. It's, it's a completely different world. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm really grateful that the timing worked out for me to be able to switch to self-publishing. You know, people talk about, you know, they'd rather do traditional publishing because there's so much extra work that comes with self-publishing. Mm -hmm. And I love it all. <laughs> <laughs> I love the marketing and the talking to people and going out and mingling and, you know, figuring well, out how to do things. You're a convention fanatic. And you've now found out what it's like to be on the other side of that table. There's a secret there, too, because I started into conventions knowing mm -hmm. that I was intending to publish. Mm -hmm. Knowing that, you know, I wanted to be there selling and networking and speaking. Mm -hmm. And I was doing the con circuit for five years before Rights of Use came out. Mm -hmm. You know, it's expensive, but... And I, I know I haven't come close to breaking even. I don't know that I ever will. But it was totally worth it. Mm -hmm. um, I love the con community. I know, right? And, and people do not understand what I mean when I tell them that you get way more out of it working there than you do buying a ticket and going in. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I have... There are times when I would like to just go mm -hmm. but it's usually in places where i have volunteered and i just want to say hi to everybody sure <laughs> um but yeah I, I get a lot 
more out of like being on panels or sit, standing behind a table or mm -hmm. even presenting when when I have no voice like I did at uh, Starbase Indie last November. Ooh, I've not been to that one, but I've heard great things. They revamped it and it's really cool. It's uh, it's the STEM focus is really unique among all the cons I go into. Um, and it would have been really, really nice to be able to, you know, talk about how supersonic wind tunnels work while actually like having a voice. <laughs> <laughs> I had five, I would say panels mm -hmm. at that con, but, uh, three of them were just me, three or four of them were just me, but the entire hour. So it's a lot more speaking than a normal panel. Sure, sure. Hydration is key. Sometimes with whiskey, you know. No, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> I prefer tequila myself. Okay. I was going to go with whatever anyone snuck me, honestly, at that point. Uh, when I went to Dragon Con, this is now years ago, but I mean, I got it. Yes, you. <laughs> You've been to Dragon Con? Oh, I volunteered at Dragon Con. Oh, excellent, excellent. Okay, so you're way there, and I may have actually run into you and not known it. But um, yeah, the lady was helping us set up our booth, and I mean, we got there. We were probably one of the first ones on the floor, and she, I am very impressed by her. I mean, I'm just like, Wow, she knows where everybody's going. She is on top of everything. And the whole time she's telling me we're kind of joking and she's, you know, we're getting to know each other. She's sipping on this giant Starbucks cup. I'm like, that is some serious coffee there. And so I finally said to her, hey, you're doing a great job. How are you managing this? And she opens up the cup and it's like, would you like some bourbon? <laughs> that is such Dragon Con. Yes. That is such Dragon Con. And I, okay, that night, I mean, and... We're not even talking six hours later, just as soon as the sun went down. My buddies and I are like, let's go get something to eat. And we go to this little hole-in-the-wall bar just across the street. And I order a gyro and this giant, like, Australian-sized beer. And <laughs> I didn't know you couldn't just drink a beer on the streets of Atlanta. So I just take my thing back to my hotel room and I'm not thinking anything of it. And this person next to me, just, we again, just start talking, just a regular old fan. And somebody says to me, dude, are you just walking down the street, drinking a beer in front of the cops? Apparently, but dude, you're fucking awesome. <laughs> And that's when I realized, again, I have the giant Australian-sized beer, and there's two squad cars parked right next to me with four cops staring at me, and they're like, whatever. You're not causing any trouble. We'll look the other way. I, I can't say I've had that kind of experience at Dragon Con, because my first five years there, I was volunteering in the armory. Ah. I don't know if you ever made it down there. Probably not. I was behind the booth a lot. Okay. Um, we had a two room, two rooms packed with weapons mm -hmm. um, for educational purposes so that 
um, writers and, and game designers and artists could see them and, and learn how they work and learn, you know, what constraints you might want to write in. It was really cool. That is cool. And that is, again, very Dragon Con. Yep. But I, I love, I tell people, conventions are a great place to take your family and they're a great way to get the kids involved. But there's definitely something to be said for the ones that are 18 plus, 21 plus. That, I mean, when you can have those sorts of little sideshows, that's, that's fun. You know, I, I give a lot of credit to all the cons that can have both parallel mm -hmm. and and also segregated yeah i think um concoction does it i'm biased mm -hmm. i love concoction concoction does a good job of it they have um dedicated kids programming and also like specific different hallway not safe for work panels that was a good panel um they let me moderate it <laughs> I'm sure some of my coworkers and family looked at me and were like, you? NSFW, really? It's always the quiet ones. Yep. Mm -hmm. And to, it's an inherent contradiction moderating a not safe for work panel anyway. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> that was good, though. Yeah. A variety on the NSFW scale. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. My segment is usually violence, actually. Okay, well. But we had romance writers and horror writers and mm -hmm. a little bit of everything. So you have a tent, you, are you a fan of extra violent media? No, not at all. Okay. Um. I just want it to count when it happens, you know? Sure. I don't, not sure how far you made it into rights of use, but there were some parts that were hard to write mm -hmm. or where extra violence got added in because it made sense for the plot. Mm -hmm. um, Sarah and the machete, for example, mm -hmm. which I mean, on the grand scheme of things, I guess that's not that much, but. It's not always the quantity or the tool. Sometimes it's just how it's used. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, true. I, have you seen RoboCop? I have not. The original, I mean. I have not seen any of them. Okay. Um, the There's two versions of it. There's an R-rated version and an X-rated version. Oh, okay. Um, here's the weird thing. I saw the R-rated version first, and that. It's mostly the content of violence in this, the difference between the two. Mm -hmm. In the R-rated version, there is a scene where one of the robots blows this guy away in the middle of a boardroom scene. And in the, the X-rated version, you just see this robot pump like dozens of rounds of heavy gauge fire into this guy. He gets pulverized. He becomes hamburger. In the R-rated version, they tame that back and they say, mm, Let's just make it one big burst and cut the scene right there. The weird thing is, in my mind, and everybody I've spoken to about this, they think that's worse. Hmm. That, that one big bam and you're surprised and the guy is dead is scarier than the cartoonish turn him into hamburger scene. Huh. And that, that can really be, like I said, if it's just one 
really effective violent burst that might sink in where something else doesn't right weird tangent and i'm sorry it's fine i was thinking more along the lines of you know sometimes it's seeing the impact more than it is seeing the violence mm-hmm. um going back to rights of use i'm not sure if i'm gonna spoil anything you can but i won't okay um there is a pitiful little scene with sarah in the middle mm-hmm. um, where she's strapped to a chair um above the above a pool and there's something in it and um she knows something's going to happen and it's a very long scene I had to do it again, I might cut it back, but it was a very long scene of just waiting. And I felt like that was rather gut-wrenching. I'm pretty sure that's one of the ones where I was sitting on the floor bawling afterwards. Um, <laughs> but but to your point, sometimes it's not what happens as much as it is, you know, the anticipation of what happens. Mm-hmm. When you're writing something like that, do you feel like, I mean, you're saying you're bawling. Do you have that hesitation to do this to your characters? I feel like rights of use is a weird example for that question. Okay. Because I was starting the series over again. I knew what was going to happen. I knew I didn't want to deviate from it. And the entire time that I was writing it and the entire time I was rewriting it, I'm like whispering to Sarah in my head, it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Or this is going to be really cool and you're going to love it years later. Um, but, But in that last revision, I couldn't acknowledge that. And she couldn't, she couldn't know it. Um, which made it really hard to like strip away that hope that I was writing with Mm -hmm. Um, and to let it just be only the things that she could know I'm reminded of when I had Kristen Stovall on many episodes Mm -hmm. back now and she would just talk about how she would just focus on certain characters and torment them to no end (laughs) I don't I don't feel like I do that. Don't listen to my husband. Um, <laughs> I don't feel like I do that yet because I'm I'm just rewriting and rewriting and rewriting and rewriting. Um, book two is a good example. Book two is a good example to counter everything I just said. Um, okay. So book one is um, a good host symbiont match in terrible circumstances. Okay. And book two is a terrible host symbiont match in slightly better circumstances. And the whole book is just the host relationship with the symbiont and and she thinks it's going to be okay. And it just goes downhill and downhill and downhill. And that's really pretty torturous. You know, Mm -hmm. the last revision that I've been working on has been, you know, making that relationship even worse. But while I, I enjoy the dramatic effect of it, I enjoy that it is more compelling of a story than it was. 
you know, I, I want things to be better for her. I want her to be happy. I want her to be some kick-ass young woman out conquering the galaxy. Um, but she has to, you know, work on this team first. Mm -hmm. So you start this off as fan fiction. It goes through this incredibly long, torturous process to become the book it is today. And now you start book two. Does that process, that journey, give you a chance to look at book two and say, this is a series I could make that goes five, ten books out and I know exactly where it's going to go? Does it give you a direction that you didn't have years ago? No, it's the same direction. Um, okay. It was a, a five-story series originally that I was planning three more. Mm -hmm. And right now I'm planning 11 books. Okay. So it's still very consistent with the core of what it was, mm -hmm. but all the... It's growing up. I don't know if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I feel like me writing as a teenager, there's only so much I know about the world. And, mm -hmm. you know, you see things very black and white, very concrete. Um, just this is the way it is and kind of unnuanced. And the longer I write it as original fiction, you know, as I was going through college, as I was getting my first job, as I've um, had that job, had my engineering and management jobs for years now, you know, there's a lot more context that's gotten dumped into this series. Um, setting details and the the worries that all my characters are considering and the, the consequences that they're taking into consideration, you know, it changes the tone of everything, but it doesn't change the core of what it is. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's been fun. It's been heavy. <laughs> and that, that's definitely worth pointing out. I mean, when you're writing something at 15, to, to use an age, I don't know exactly when you started, but um, you're not going to write something that's going to connect with somebody who's 40, 50, 60. You might connect well with other teenagers and people in their 20s, but now that you can actually say, this is something that, you know, this is a, a the problems of somebody who has a job and worries about their health and has had to deal with some family setbacks. I mean, that that's... It's it's partly that I want to say I had a leg up because of um, I had a lot of adult friends and mentors, mm -hmm. but I would also you know plot with my dad playing catch in the backyard, and he would you know tear him tear my story to shreds. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but what about this? But what about that? But what about this other thing? And I was like, but I don't want to write about those things. And you know, I'm coming back later and. Yeah, um, yeah, I should probably write about those things, put them in. It, it, partly it, it gives the story a lot more depth, and partly, and it, like you said, expands who the story relates to. Mm -hmm. um, but also, it just makes it more interesting. I'm not trying to, you know, keep it simple 
at 90,000 words. I'm trying to, you know, use all the words that I can, or use as few words as I can, and it still ends up at 90,000. Mm-hmm. Um, it sounds like you did you a big favor there. Yeah. It always does. <laughs> Every everybody who's let me bounce ideas off them has been a huge, huge help. Can you tell me a little bit about your your thought for book two or three? Um, sure. What do you want to know? Just kind of overviews. No, not even so much overview, but you were talking about how you you know what direction it's taking, and mm-hmm. I'm just looking at your creative process. Okay. I'm not sure this is a process kind of answer, but um, rights of use is very good versus evil. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't like that about it, but I felt like I had to establish everybody's prejudices before I I mix things up. So um, book two, we get to start mixing things up and it gets very, very gray. Um, book three, I feel like is going to be less great. It's more of a love story. Um, but also all these things where they're like, but the Air Force really has UFOs, you know, they never get declassified. Mm -hmm. So I want to play with that, especially in the context of a love story. I definitely see being able to deconstruct something between pure good and evil and add the shades of gray and the nuances in between is that that's, that's definitely the mark of what I, I mentioned before about taking something that's initially maybe thought of from by a teenager and bringing it up because that's something that a lot of people in their late teens start to get a grasp on is that it's not always that simple. I feel like that was something that I really wanted to do as I was writing the fan fiction series. Okay. Um, that that's what I had been planning. That's what I was working toward and starting on. Um, because the, the show that I was working from was just... Okay, the show that I was working from didn't really make the characters or the, the race that I was working with very people. They, they were kind of cardboard cutouts of these are potential allies, but we don't trust them because they look like the bad guys. And it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, but they must also have, you know, relationships and family and history and things Mm -hmm. that they care about. Um, So once you acknowledge that about these, you know, potential allies who look look like your bad guys, you know, maybe your bad guys have that too. True, true. And that's something that I I don't think gets explored quite enough. If if I've guessed which show that you're working from, I agree with you completely there. That needed to be fleshed out. Yeah. And if there were another show made that works specifically with just that group of characters, I would watch the heck out of that. Right? That would be awesome. I uh-huh. never I never considered that they that anybody would do that, but it would be amazing. Well, yeah. And I said, I, hmm, I'm trying to, to uh, just, but yeah, because I've always been fascinated with if you cut out the quote unquote heroes from a story, 
there are a lot of stories I want to do this with and just explore the world of the villains. Mm-hmm. And then you're not dealing with good guy versus bad guy. You're dealing with bad guy versus bad guy, or maybe bad guy versus slightly less bad guy. And that can be really interesting to me. Okay. Okay. That, that makes sense. To, to take, I'm, I'm just going to use my example because I don't want to put words in your mouth. I would love to tell the story of the James Bond underworld without involving James Bond. Ooh. I would love to deal with these people as like different mafia members or different gang warlords or something and just have them try to steal power from each other. And the British guy is just this guy who comes in at the very end and messes up everybody's plans. But he's not their day-to-day problem. <laughs> he's not the ones that are faxing TPS reports over. Right. You know, maybe they get some extra kudos if they, you know, mm-hmm. take them out for each other. Right, right. But generally speaking, they're much more worried about somebody moving in on their turf. Right. I would love to tell that story. And and to, to go to where you're saying, I mean, if you have these very powerful aliens who each have their own jurisdiction and their own galaxies that they're in charge of and they're fighting against each other and they have millennia of history behind that struggle and Mm -hmm. we don't hear any of that, that bothers me a lot because there's so much nuance getting missed there. It really is. Yeah. See, the the way I want to come at it is a little more good guys versus good guys. Mm -hmm. Um, Oh, no, wait, they're... They're, most of the bad guys are just misunderstood, you know? Mm-hmm. They're coming from this perspective, and they're doing this thing for reasons that really make a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that if you didn't have this one thing, you would do it too. Um, I, I want everybody to be good guys, but, you know, there's still conflict. Mm-hmm. And it's not actually... To use my example, it's not even that hard to say, you know, everybody's the bad guy because like I said, there are people out there who I, aren't necessarily good in any way, shape, or form, I think. Right. Um, I mean, they're not the people having these conversations, but, um, you know, when they're burning down villages, okay, I think I can safely, I can be on solid ground when I say you're a bad person. <laughs> you're a bad person. Yes. But, mm-hmm. you know, maybe. maybe- you thought it was a good idea for a particular reason. Right, right. And on the same side, you you know, you look at James Bond. Mm-hmm. Where are the stories from the, the shopfront owners whose businesses have been destroyed? Mm-hmm. You know, he's not a pure good character either. No. Go ahead. We had a, I had a, my friend and I, who I went to see almost every James Bond movie with, actually really got into this discussion once when we basically asked ourselves, is James Bond anything other than a glorified assassin? Well, I'm, I mean, there was a lot of yes and no there. Okay. But um, I, I mean, because on one hand, it's like, well, he's a government operative. He's supposed to secure certain interests for the UK. Uh, you know, he's got rules he has to work in. He does pretty much anything that requires extra skills. And my friend is like, no, his job is basically just to take out the people who get in the way. And that, that conversation went on for hours. That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, so, again, I'm, I'm taking it way off point here. And I'm not trying to sell you on anything I'm saying in here. I'm just bouncing ideas off of you because it's mm-hmm. fun. 
and you've got a great head for doing this. It's just my my mind blanks once in a while. So. Oh, that's that's all right. That's all okay. right. That's like um, I, I, I a lot of times when I throw out ideas, I'm in no way committed to them. I'm just seeing how they play out. Sure. So pretty much a glorified assassin in my okay. view. But... Fair enough. Fair enough. But going back to what we were saying earlier, too, you know, when M and the rest of MI6 mm-hmm. um, start pointing out hey, you know, you're not following this reg and you're not following that reg and you you didn't do this right, you know, that adds a lot more to the story than just, you know, James Bond going through the movie and blowing up things. Mm-hmm. Ooh, There's... What if we had a James Bond MacGyver crossover? I would love that so much. Right? Like, Bond needs, you know, needs a tech guy. He mm-hmm. might as well have a tech guy who makes random bombs out of fertilizer. Some of the best Bond, mo- not best Bond movies, but some of the best Bond scenes and Bond ideas came when he was dealing with Jack Wade. I always like when Bond teams up with Americans in some way, shape or form, whether it's Jack <laughs> or Felix or something. Sure. Because there's definitely something to the American British back and forth dynamic that makes for a rewarding story. Sure. I have no other examples of that. Um, except that I am very grateful to my B- British fanfiction beta reader. <laughs> and all the times that we were reading each other's fic and going, I thought we were both speaking English. What's that word? I have a British friend of mine who will constantly have these conversations with me that a word can be a word that we both know very well, but it means something completely different. And that's... It's amazing how quickly that happens. Right? Like the the phrase, go on, if you say that to a British person, is very different than an American person. Really? Yeah. Like an American, if I say to you, go on, that means you have my attention. Please continue with what you're talking about. Right. If you say it to a British person, it means, I don't think you know what you're talking about. You're acting like an idiot. Oh, my. I mean, go on to a British person is the equivalent of saying, you're out of your fucking mind. Here, I'll give you some more rope. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That's good to know. Yeah. Took me a while to find that out, too. Learned it the hard way, to be quite honest with you. It's funny how how many things you have to learn the hard way. <laughs> uh, but once you learn to laugh at it, it's better. Yes, yes. Yeah. So once we establish that there is a bit of a, a communication issue, it, it becomes a lot better. Oh, yeah. Well, Shannon, let me go ahead and let you go for today, because okay. I think we'll definitely have another one of these chats sometime soon, because I'm really having a lot of fun here. And I could see this being a, a series down the road as, as your book series progresses. Excellent. But uh, how are things? Where can people find you on the web and check down your book? Um, Twitter is a great place to find me on the web. I'm always saying something um, at Shannon Eichhorn, E-I-C-H-O-R-N. Um, my book is available on Amazon and paperback and ebook and audiobook and on audiobook uh, vendors across the internet. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being here and I'm looking forward to having you again soon. All right. Thank you very much. I would like to thank Shannon for being my guest today and I would like to thank you for listening. Let's get to the community building part of the show. 
And I remind you, community building tips are something I use to promote the podcast that takes less than five minutes of your time and costs you nothing. Those are my two qualifications. Now here's something I could recommend. Go ahead and check out other alternative social media platforms. For example, if you follow the show on Twitter, at Aaron Bossig, check out the Facebook page as well, which is Aaron Bossig and the Hungry Trilobite Podcast. And if you're a Facebook fan already, go ahead and check out the Twitter feed. I'm also trying to get into a Pinterest and an Instagram feed, and honestly, I'm not really sure how to best promote an audio video show on those platforms, so I would really appreciate some helpful hints if you could get those out to me. You could send them to my email address, bossigpodcast.yahoo.com. And don't forget you can get the show notes at aaronbossig.com. Please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, YouTube. And we are syndicated on Realm of the Mist, a fantastic podcast network. Thanks so much, and we'll see you next time.